Welcome back to The Shepherd's Pie, a slice of hope to raise faithful kids. I'm Tony Kolank, a professor at Ave Maria School of Law, a father of five and the columnist for Practical Homeschooling Magazine, and I'm also the author of the teen fiction series, The Harwood Mysteries. By the way, I just finished working on the final cover for book five of that series called Murder at Penwood Manor, due out in October of 2023. I am so excited. I got to talk to the publisher to see if I can do a cover reveal because it's a pretty cool cover. Uh, So if you've got teens looking for a good series to read this summer, have them check out my Harwood Mysteries series on my website. Today, we're speaking with Stephanie Lansom, the author of a World War II novel, codename Edelweiss, and we'll be speaking about the radicalization of our kids today and how to combat this as a parent, teacher, or youth minister. I'm thrilled to have as my guest today, Stephanie Lansom, an author of five novels who specializes in writing about women in history for women who love history. She's traveled now on five continents and dozens of countries, and she makes her home in Lake Elmo, Minnesota with her husband and family. Her fifth novel, Codename Edelweiss, just released in March of 2023. Stephanie, welcome to The Shepherd's Pie. Thanks for having me, Tony. I'm really glad to be here. Tell us a little bit more about your background, maybe how you got into writing and especially writing for Christian Market. Yeah, a lot of people often ask me if I always wanted to be a writer and really It really didn't occur to me. So it's kind of God's little surprise to me as I got older. I have always been a huge reader. I love historical fiction. I was a history major in college. I ended up working in market research for a while and then staying home with my four kids. And that is what got me writing. Thought I'd give historical fiction a try, but I really had no idea. So it was a big surprise to me when my first novel was published by Howard Books, and they wanted two more. So I did three biblical novels for Howard Books, and that was The Well, The Thief, and The Tomb. And those are about women of the New Testament who encounter Jesus and how they're changed by that encounter. And then I went on to a kind of a new era. I started writing in 1930s Los Angeles, and that was the novel In a Far-Off Land, which is the story of the prodigal son set in the glamour of Hollywood and in the Great Depression era. When I was researching that novel, I ran into this amazing story about Nazis infiltrating Hollywood and this Jewish spy master who set up a spy network to combat them. And I knew I had to write that story. And so that's Codename Edelweiss. What I love about 1930s is we learn a lot about World War One, and then we kind of skip over the Depression and the Dust Bowl, and then we learn about World War Two. But so much was happening in the 30s that it's kind of just a, a little playground for historical fiction. Like you can focus on so many different things that were happening. There were all kinds of racial tensions. There was prohibition. I just think there's a lot in those 10 years that people don't learn about in school. I've started your novel, uh, Codename Edelweiss, on Audible, and it's very good. Maybe give us a little bit of an insight into the plot in your uh, latest novel. When I was researching into the 1930s Hollywood timeline for In a Far Off Land, I ran into this book, and it was called, at first I was like, what? It was called Hitler in Los Angeles. Started reading about it, and it was just unbelievable. Nazi operatives that were being snuck into... Los Angeles and were infiltrating these German-American groups within the city 
and kind of spreading their Nazi propaganda and anti-Semitism. And nobody knew about it or really cared, except for this Jewish lawyer named Leon Lewis. And he was very concerned about Hitler. He'd been watching his rise to power. But this was still really early. Like he hadn't annexed Poland. He hadn't done any of the stuff that he was going to do. He was just kind of a crazy new chancellor in Germany. But Lewis was worried enough that he went to the authorities and told them about this movement of Nazism in Los Angeles. And they just didn't care. They were more concerned with communists. And he decided to set up his own spy network to keep tabs on these people. And he recruited Christian men and women to infiltrate these groups and bring information back to him. And it was very dangerous work. And it, it ended up being very important work that he did all on his own and without any payment or really any acknowledgement even later. I knew I wanted to write this book about all these things that were happening and that he learned about. And so that's what I did. And so Coney Madel Weiss is about a woman, Liesl Weiss, and she has been recruited by Leon Lewis and experiences many of the things that his spies experienced. It's also about one of his male spies, who I call Agent 13, kind of the things that he's faced with and the questions that he has to ask himself and the things he needs to do to infiltrate these groups. They are fictionalized, but many of the actual situations that they find themselves in come directly from Lewis's records because he kept really good records. Like he has boxes and boxes of handwritten notes about all of his spies and the things that they did. And they're all housed at the University of California. So I based a whole bunch of the things that they encountered and the people, the, the Germans that they encountered, the Nazis, are based on real people too. There's a really good display of some of the propaganda and some of the photos and the different things that he had in his boxes. It's on their website and it's called In Our Own Backyard. And it's just kind of fun to just browse through. It's actually really scary to see some of the propaganda that the Germans and the Nazis were putting out in California at the time was shocking, like shockingly anti-Semitic. That's a good segue then. Let's talk a little bit about uh, how the Nazis were radicalizing not just our adults, but our youth also. And what did you see on that? What did you learn about that in, in your research? It was really scary to see how smart they were, not only in Germany. So they, they were doing these things in Germany. They were radicalizing their young people, their young men, especially at first in a thing called brown shirts. And that was even before Hitler gained any power. He was already like starting the brown shirts. Um, and this was a paramilitary organization that he pretty much indoctrinated with these anti-Semitic ideas. But then in the US, we had kind of a similar situation going on after World War One, where these boys, there's a lot of families that didn't have dads. We lost so many men in World War One. It's I don't think people realize like the death toll that happened between World War I and the Spanish flu, there were a huge percentage of families that didn't have fathers. And so when the Nazis came in, they'd already had experience with how to get these boys into their groups, because that's what had happened in Germany also. So they were preying on them, really. You know, they were young. They didn't have fathers. Their fathers had been heroes. They died fighting for something they believed in. These boys wanted to be heroes too, but they didn't have anything to fight for. 
and they were angry. Some of them were angry boys, as, as you know, 15, 16 year old boys can be angry. So it, they were pretty easy pickings for what became the silver shirts in the U.S., which was Hans Winterhalter. He's in Codename Edelweiss also as playing himself. So he was tasked with building up this group, this paramilitary group called the Silver Shirts. And he did it by offering them somewhere to belong, something to believe in. That thing that they, that he wanted them to believe in was anti-Semitism. They could blame everything that was happening to them and their families on the Jews of Los Angeles. Unfortunately, it worked. And they, they did get some pretty violent groups going in the Los Angeles at the time. So where does this movement begin historically? And if it began in the Roaring Twenties, I thought everything was supposed to be so wonderful in the Roaring Twenties. <laughs> well, I mean, there were certainly things going on in the Twenties that I guess people would consider wonderful. I mean, there was the economy was booming, but I think we were all heading towards, you know, the downside of that. So in Germany, the 20s were not roaring. The, the late 20s were a time of huge social conflict. And that conflict came mostly between the right and the left. Surprise. <laughs> surprise, surprise. We've heard that before. But it was between, you know, the fascists and the communists. So there were like fights in the streets. And, and that was happening to a certain extent in the US. Um, we were having a some people heading towards communism. And then there was that backlash of people going further to the right. And so we were running into some of that towards the late 20s. But then when the Great Depression hit, it was a whole new ballgame. And a lot of these kids who were now in their young adulthood and 20s, and they couldn't find jobs and they didn't know where to go. So unfortunately, that kind of fed into what the Nazis were looking for at the time. Let's jump for a minute to what we're seeing today with our youth. Um, you know, we see a lot of stories on the news that are not particularly flattering about our youth today. And we're seeing radicalization, it seems to me, again, on the left and on the right. Um, maybe can you address a little bit just from your own place? Uh, and you live in Minnesota, so you may be in a particularly good place to address <laughs> radicalization. What, what you're seeing and, and if, if there's any parallels to what you researched? Yeah, when I researched, what I really focused on was how these uh, groups, no matter whether coming from the left or the right, how they target and, and bring people into their groups, right? And I think we see that today just as much as we saw it then. So you have a vulnerable group, kids who don't have parents, their families are broken. Uh, maybe they've never had a dad. There's a lot, there's just a lot of that, probably just as much as there was in the 1930s. And there's kids who are looking for meaning in their life. And now I think we even have less meaning because as you know, like there's so much less faith in our communities and we don't necessarily grow up with a strong faith. We try, but there's a lot of kids out there who have no kind of faith in a higher power. There's a lot of cynicism. And that kind of leaves people empty. And then you end up with these vulnerable kids who are looking for something to believe in. And if it's not God, it's going to be something else. Because if there's nothing there to believe in, then you're open to almost anything. So I think that's where some of our ideologies are taking root now in these kids. You know, we're seeing the gender ideologies and, you know, all kinds of 
Satanism and like stuff that you wouldn't have expected kids to connect with, but they're just desperately looking for something to find meaning in. And I think finding it. So what are some of the tactics that you saw that the silver shirts were doing in the 30s? And if we see any parallels to those tactics to get these uh, youth into these groups today? I mean, first, they went for people who didn't have something else in their lives, you know, kids who are searching for something. And then it's that sense of belonging that's always going to get kids in their 20s or even older people, even adults, that sense of belonging and being part of something bigger, helping someone, doing the right thing, being compassionate. I think we hear that now, like if you're, if you're not with me, you're against me kind of stuff. But I think that's it too, that belonging. I mean, they did things like give them uniforms. And you think about our kids today, there's often telltale uniforms of what group you belong to. And that's what they did then too. They had silver shirts and swastikas. Everybody knew who they belonged to, what group that they were supporting. I think it's also that divisiveness, like you have to be against someone in order to be for something like, like the silver shirts, very much against communists, very much against Jews. You don't have friends who are Jews. You don't go to Jewish stores. You are they're the enemy, they're them. You know, I mean, you have, there's a us and them that we set up too. Christians have an us and them. We're just as guilty of it. Maybe it's a little less obvious, but I think that that's probably a really big red flag when you're using the words us and them. And if you can also just, because I, I know you even referenced this in your book, I mean, obviously the Nazis were against more than just Jews. They were, you know, you mentioned Catholics, Blacks, uh, you know, different minorities, which tied in very nicely, I'm assuming, to our clan mentality that was going on in our country, too. Oh, yes. Generally, you would see the silver shirts in their full regalia at things like at parades or community events. You know, that's when they would like show up and all together. You rarely see it. I don't think you'd see one walking around, maybe, though. Um, and then they would, they had some land out in Hollywood Hills where they would drill and like, get together and do their military like activities. So I think that you would see them more in groups. And absolutely, the clan, the clan was part of that Nazi influence. They connected with, there were many groups in Los Angeles, especially. And unfortunately, a lot of them were called things like the Christian Mothers Association, you know, just like now, like they seemed innocuous or even good, but they were, you know, racist or anti-Semitic or us and them kind of things like so this the name sounded actually fine but they were connected with the clan they were connected with the nazis and there was kind of what they call the fifth column which is this group of fascists that were loosely connected to each other and the friends of new germany again sounds like a nice name doesn't it friends of new germany <laughs> they're friendly and they're new germany's no they were like the main Nazi organization that eventually was found to be getting money directly from Hitler and from the Nazis in Germany. So you find a vulnerable group, you reach out to them, give them a place to belong, give them uniforms, you know, really cultivate an us-them mentality. Are there other things that these groups do to really try to entice, you know, these vulnerable youth to come in? I know that among the silver shirts in the U.S. and the brown shirts in Germany, there were repercussions if you decided that you didn't want to remain part of that group. 
if you looked around and said, wait a minute, like, I don't actually want to attack Jews in Los Angeles. I don't want to be a part of a plot to assassinate Jewish producers and actors, which there were, they were plotting those kind of things. It was hard to get out. Like once you're in, they knew where you lived. They knew who your family was. You and you were very aware at how ruthless these people were and that if you tried to get out, it was going to not only be bad for you, but bad for the people that you loved and the people around you. And so that was a big deterrent for anyone who thought they might be leaving the silver shirts after a while. And I think that happens now, too. I think it's real easy to become part of a group, but far more difficult to leave because not only have you alienated all the people the good people in your life and you don't feel like you can go back to them, but you're leaving the only social group and the only support system that you have. There's a, a teenager who was very close to me who, you know, was part of a lot of these kind of trans groups that a lot of young people were in. And when that person decided to break away, uh, they were surprised at the amount of vitriol that was heading in their direction for wanting to sort of just get out of that whole scene. It was it was pretty ugly. So going back to your characters then in the book, you've plotted this out. You have your characters who are having to deal with this. How do you have your characters sort of addressing some of the questions that, that we're struggling with? So Lisa's not only dealing with Nazis in her life, like that's kind of the least of her problems. Her big problems are her family. <laughs> So she's a widow. She has two little kids that she's supporting. And she has a very difficult mother who lives with her. And then she has this brother who's just not stepping up to help them, even though he's 18 or 19, he should be helping out. And he's the one who's recruited by the Nazis and finds himself in one of these groups. And so she's just angry at him. But my other agent 13, you know, he's a man who has gone through World War One. He's seen how the world works a little bit. He's made some mistakes in his own life and come back from them. And so when he sees these boys, he just sees kids who are in need of help. They're in need of somebody to reach out and talk to them, someone to listen to them and maybe get to know them a little bit so they can explain themselves, like why they're in these groups. So he like try, just really non-judgmentally, and he doesn't have to be judgmental because he's pretending to be a Nazi, but he reaches out to them and kind of just makes some relationships there in order to bring them back from what he considers this road that they're going down, but they, they can turn around, they can come back. So he gives them some, a way to save face and get out of this corner that they put themselves in. What can we do today when we see our own kids who may be attracted to groups on whatever side they might be heading? We can kind of spot radicalism, as you said. What can parents mm -hmm. or, or teachers or youth ministers do when they start seeing kids heading in that direction? Did your character ever discover some good <laughs> hints that we can use? I'll tell you, my character did. But mostly, I think it's because I have dealt with four young adults and all of their friends in this difficult era that we're in right now and i've seen kids go sideways and really i think that we need to be like do what agent 13 does like just keep those communications open and that's a very fine line because of course some of these kids whether they're our own or our kids friends who come to our house and you see what they're up to and you think well i can't condone that behavior or i don't want that around my kid and yet in a lot of instances we're the only Christian 
couple that they know that's still married. You could be the only Catholic in someone's life. You could be the only set of parents that's still married that they've ever encountered. And so you really have a huge responsibility there to be, you know, the face of Christ to them and to listen to them and talk to them. And I don't think you even, most of the time, if your house is like ours, we have crucifixes, you know, we go to mass, like we're not quiet about our faith at all. You don't even have to say to the kid, well, I really don't approve of what you're doing. <laughs> you know, they already know that. <laughs> They're well aware of that. But just saying like, hey, you can come over anytime. You know, do you want to talk about it? How are things at home? You know, just things like that to open up a door a little bit so that, you know, maybe they do start thinking, oh, it really isn't us and them because I know this Christian couple and they're okay. And so-and-so's mom is, she seems to be all right or whatever. And if you're really lucky, you can develop a relationship enough that when this kid does question what they're doing or get into trouble that they don't know how to get out of, they might think of you and say like, okay, I think I can talk to this person. You can only hope, but you certainly don't want to be another judgmental adult that says, stay out of my house, <laughs> or we don't want you around, or you're a bad kid, because that's not going to help. It's a difficult line to walk. Right. And I guess it partly depends on which groups we're talking about. Yeah. Um, what What about some of these other groups, though? Like, what if you're on the other end and you see that the kids are, you know, whatever, white supremacists or some extreme thing? I mean, it's like, how do you not not judge that. Absolutely. I mean, same thing. You're like, you don't want to push them away. And yet you certainly can't condone that or like, just be quiet, because that could be construed as condoning it. I read a really interesting article when I was doing my research about this guy. He's older now, but he was a white supremacist for like 20 years. And then he tried to get out and he did get out. And now he goes around speaking to groups, talking about how to de-radicalize basically people. And a lot of what he had to say was that us and them, like it, it took him in being introduced to the people that he supposedly hated or that supposedly, you know, were against him in order for him to understand that they were people and that he had things in common with them and that there was no really real reason to hate them. So yeah, I just, I, I think it, maybe it is just a communication thing, like sit down and start asking questions. You know how kids are sometimes, especially, I mean, I'm thinking of older kids, like older teens, because you certainly want to protect your younger children from any of this stuff as long as you can. But when they are introduced to it and when they are, do have to go out in the world and deal with it. I think it's just that communication of asking questions like, what do you think about this? Why do you feel this way? Sometimes people can convince themselves of what they're doing wrong. They've just never really thought it out and put it into words. And when they hear them say it, hear themselves say it, they're like, oh yeah, maybe that does sound kind of bad. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's it's that communication without being reactionary, I think that might be the only response to that right radicalization in that like fascist type radicalization and then pray for him. Yeah. I was going to bring faith into this here uh, as we start heading to the end and, and, and interested in your book too, because I know your book is put out by uh, Tyndale, which is a Christian publisher. What role does faith play in codename Edelweiss? And where do you see faith playing into sort of our conversation with de-radicalizing the kids that we might find in our own lives? Yeah, well, I have a long list 
the kids I pray for. And it's amazing what God can do. I always say this to, to everybody, but you might be the only person praying for this kid. It's hard to believe how devoid of faith our society is, especially some groups of it. And so really do like remember these kids in your prayers specifically and ask for God's protection on them. As far as the role of faith plays in my books, I kind of feel like in the realm of Christian fiction, you've got a, a wide variety of how much faith is in each book. And I try to write very subtly with a subtle Christian thread in my books. Basically, what would my, where are my characters are? Where are they with God? Like, how are they talking to him? What questions are they asking of God? In Codename Edelweiss, it's that classic question that I think we ask when we see, you know, Nazism and World War II. And it's like, why does God allow evil? And so that's what Liesl's asking during most of the book and trying to figure that question out. Like, why is God allowing evil like this to flourish? And what is my role? And what does he want me to do about it? A lot of my characters don't come up with real pat final answers, but they're always like moving on that goal to the answers that they're asking of God. So I do very little preaching and a lot of questioning because that's kind of where I am too in my faith. It's like I do a lot of questioning. <laughs> and the questions that your characters are asking are the same questions that are, I think, underneath the radicalization to begin with. I think it's, you know, in some ways it's because yeah. we see injustice in the world and we don't know how to resolve it or kids don't know why it's happening. And so how could God let this happen? And so they become alienated even from the idea of God. I mean, and kind of, as you said, right. leaves a void that's going to be filled somewhere. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like the right questions to be asking. Another good question to be asking is if folks want to buy your book or get to learn more about you and some of your other books and where they can get them, uh, where would you like them to go? I segue. Um, they can go to stephanielansom.com for all of the information about my books. There's a lot of free stuff on my website also. Um, you can get lots of research information about what went into Codename Edelweiss, what's fact and what's fiction. I got some free chapters of all of my books. You can get chunks of my, my books for free on my website. And you can also order Codename Edelweiss and any of the others. Well, uh, unfortunately, I think that's... Uh... We're going to have to end the conversation there, but uh, very much looking forward to, to uh, hearing the rest of, of your book because you've got me hooked on it already. And I know uh, anybody who picks them up will be hooked, but it's been a pleasure uh, having you on the show today talking about uh, some pretty serious topics, but ones that I think we need to be looking at. Yeah, it was good. Good talk. Yeah. I don't do <laughs> chit chat. I only do serious topics. <laughs> As my friends know. Well, that's great. But unfortunately, that is all the time we have for the show today. Uh, we've been speaking with Stephanie Lansom about how to combat radicalization in our youth. Uh, again, this is Anthony Brown Colink. If you do have a question for me or a topic that you want me to cover on the show, please drop me a line on my website at antonycolink.com. Uh, you can also learn more about the Harwood Mysteries there, uh, my historical fiction series in 12th century England. Until next time, though, may God bless you and your families as we work together to raise faithful kids. Mm -hmm.